and welcome to a special edition of the Barnhart Podcast. I think we're going to call this one number 89. We have a special guest on this episode. We have from the Nonveni Pacham blog, Mr. Mark Dougherty joining us today. And um, as you can imagine, if you've been following my blog and if you've been following Nonveni Pacham, um, I'm, I'm sure you can anticipate what the topic of this podcast is going to be. This is going to be where we're sitting and talking exclusively, almost exclusively, about the Bergolian anti-papacy and everything that revolves around that. So here we are. And uh, Mark, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Anne. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be here. And I don't know what you're talking about. I can't imagine we're going to have probably more than 10 minutes worth of conversation. I know, there's just nothing to say, is there? It's just going to be a series of awkward silences, I predict. So, <laughs> The data set, the data set is so very small, yes. I can't imagine where yes, this will go. Yes, I mean, but. there's there's just nothing to say. And I mean, I, I've, I've, I've so many times said to myself, you know, if only, if only I could get my written oeuvre on this topic up over a million words, then then maybe it would be it would be legit. And maybe if I could get my video presentation oove up over, you know, five hours, that that you know it would be legit. But hey, <laughs> give me time because I could totally do a part three video. And um, and I know Mark, you're a you're an actual human being with an actual job, <laughs> and so you um you don't you obviously don't have nearly as much time as as someone like I, someone like me has on their hands, but you're still, uh, you're still putting a lot of content out, th- out over there at Nonveni Pacham. And just wanted to thank you and reiterate what I said in the part two video. Thank you for all your support and pouring over these, these just awful uh, German <laughs> theological texts of the, uh, of the, uh, of the second half of the 20th century. It's just just awful having to slog through that stuff. So hopefully you've burned, you, we've both burned a few years off of our, off of our purgation in, in doing that. Well, and, and the, the truth of it is, there's still so much more that oh, hasn't yeah. been investigated. There are still, there are still a thousand footnotes that haven't been researched for, from just, all that. It in is just, just that, that one doctoral dissertation. And then, Correct. yeah, and then every every paper or everything or every journal that you find, it has its own massive set of footnotes, and you just, and certainly some of them are repetitive, and they're you could you can circle back around, and that has happened. In fact, the next the next episode that we do, um, I have the feeling that one of the things that we're going to have to talk about is um, Ratzinger's paper in which he, um, do you remember, and I'm sure the listenership, I'm asking as a, as a rhetorical question to the listenership too, do you remember the thermonuclear post that I made where um, Ratzinger opened one of his papers um, uh, citing a, a German theologian named Eric Peterson who postulated that the papacy should be should be split in three in order to reflect the Trinity. And so you'd have one Catholic Pope, one Orthodox Pope, and one Protestant Pope. <laughs> oh, okay. <yes>. So <laughs> as if that wasn't good enough, um, what needs to happen and is going to happen uh, fairly soon, I think, is that we're going to look at the rest of that paper, which uh, has some pretty interesting insights into the mind of Ratzinger and how he views not just the papacy, but how one would go about being the 
uber pope, the best pope ever. And it's all right there in that paper. So, uh, so be, be on the lookout for that. Best pope the, ever, like E-V-A-H. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, <laughs> there's just so much more. And then we've got that in English. So um, good times, good times. And this is this is certainly not, um, this is not going to be the one and only Barnhart podcast. I get the, get the feeling with uh, Mark Dodd sitting in. So, um, well, let, let's see. Let's let's jump into that. We, ha- we have a list of talking points here that we we kind of want to hit and cover. Let me pull up my little list now and see if there's kind of any intuitive um, order of progression that we should go in. Um, well, let's let's start with B- Bishop Gracida, who is such a sweetheart. Oh, what a what an absolutely wonderful dear man who's also like this World War II hero and so on and so forth. I mean, there's just, there's nothing not to love about Bishop Gracida, but, and and he's doing things on, on his blog, which is the Abyssus Abyssum blog. Um, and he, he reprints stuff and he syndicates stuff. And sometimes he ha- he adds his own commentary. And keep in mind, Bishop Gracida is 96 years old. How many 96-year-olds do you know who are m- using a computer at all, much less maintaining a blog? Uh, God bless Bishop Gracida, what a sweetheart, and and the only the only one right now who is taking a firm, definitive stand and saying in any way, this ain't right. There is something wrong here. Now, having said that, and we were kind of we were chatting about this in the in the pre-show when we were getting ready to hit the record button. Um, I I do have a little bit of a quibble to pick with Bishop Gracida because he focuses largely on um, University Domini Gregius, which is the the document of JP2 that lays out these rules for a conclave and prohibits electioneering and all that kind of stuff. And Bishop Gracida is very focused on the fact that there was obviously in, in March of 2013 at that Cardinals retreat that they had there um, from the, what was it, the 10th to the 13th, um, that of course, of course, I mean, you've got them openly admitting that you've got McCarrick openly admitting that they're all engaging in massive, massive electioneering, and the St. Gallen Mafia is openly bragging about the fact that they're engaged that they engaged in electioneering, which would violate UDG. But I'm going to state my position, and then Doc, you can you can uh, take over. My position, of course, is is that there was no conclave in 2013. That Ratzinger's attempted faux partial abd- abdication meant that the see was never vacant. Therefore, per Canon 359, the cardinals had absolutely no capacity whatsoever to convene a valid conclave because the see still occupied, um, and so therefore. There was no conclave in 2013, and why I insist that this matters so much is that if you were subjunctive, if you were to depose um, Bergoglio, remove him as anti-pope, citing electioneering of the March 2013 conclave that wasn't, and Ratzinger and Pope Ratzinger is still alive. The, this, the cardinals still do not have any authority or capacity to convene a valid conclave. Therefore, 
if they did convene a conclave after having, quote unquote, deposed Bergoglio or gotten Bergoglio to, quote unquote, resign, you can't resign anything you never had. Anyway, if they call another faux conclave, what are you going to end up with? You're going to end up with another anti-pope, and it's going to be either Tagle or Perelin. It's going to be a man who has 30 to 40 IQ points on Bergoglio, and that's damning with faint praise, okay? That's damning with faint praise because I think probably Snoop Dogg has 30 to 40 IQ points on Bergoglio. And um, and you're going to end up with a man who's in his 60s. You're going to end up with a man in his 60s. And then, oh, oh, shudder. This is why we, this is why I think it's so important that we have to get, not just get, get Bergoglio acknowledged as an anti-pope and the hell out of there, but you have to do it for the right reason. Dismount soapbox. Mark, take it. So the whole UDG argument, uh, the, the reason why it needs to be looked at and scrutinized is not because that... Uh, if we use it to invalidate the election, that uh, the result of that would be simply another invalid conclave, which is true. But the real scrutiny or, or the scrutiny that UDG needs to bear uh, comes along a couple of lines. First of all, there was a whole lot of violations of UDG. We don't even need to go into the details of what the good bishop is uh, is saying, because first of all, it's all true. But second of all, to call upon UDG violations seven years after the quote-unquote election really would call into question probably dozens of other papal elections uh, down through history. So if it was done immediately after, called out immediately after that, hey, this thing did not go down according to the rules and that election is invalid, that would be different. To do it seven years later, not it so just much. Op- it would it would open a massive can of worms, whether it were true or not. It would just and, and you're. I think if I may summarize your point, what you're saying is okay. Let's say hypothetically, Pope Ratzinger and Bergoglio both die in their soup tonight. Okay, so the sea is vacant. And nobody is debating whether or not the sea is vacant. They're both dead. So everybody's in agreement that the sea is vacant. Per Canon 359, the Cardinals have the capacity to call a conclave. Okay, they call a conclave, they elect, they validly elect um, a Roman pontiff, the next Roman pontiff. Um, let's say it's somebody that it's somebody who's actually Catholic. If if you have this whole precedent of UDG and all of this um, you know, calling in, calling into question the validity of the conclave because maybe some, maybe two cardinals had a conversation outside of the Sistine Chapel. I mean, come on, grow up, guys. I think Mark is absolutely right. I think that's been, I think that's been going on all along. I think it's naive to think that it wasn't. Um, but what would happen is that you would then get yourself into a perpetual cycle where you elect a valid Roman pontiff and then the infiltrators would immediately start in with, it was invalid, it was invalid, it was invalid. And we were talking about this a little bit in the warm-up. Um, it's like with the presidency of the United States and impeachment. Folks get used to the fact that for now, as long as the, the the Constitutional Republic of the United States exists or manifests or whatever you want to call it, whoever whoever the opposition party is 
to the office of the presidency, the opposition party is now perpetually going to be calling for the impeachment of the president, no matter what, no matter who it is. It doesn't matter if it's Trump or any, or anybody else. And it will shift back and forth. Impeachment will just will just become the the it is the de facto paradigm. And so what you're seeing is this whole secularization and demythologizing of the papacy and the whole notion that this whole agitating for deposing a valid pontiff because two cardinals um, has said something when they were on a bathroom break or something like that. I mean, it will get to be that petty. So right. Right. And, and the analogy is a good one uh, mm-hmm. with the impeachment uh, thing in the U.S. as well. Um, you would you, it, you'd never get away from it. And there would always be enough scheming going on that someone could go back and put it would just be never ending. Every valid pontiff would be facing the same sort of thing. And since apparently there's no uh, uh, restriction time limit on when yeah, you can make yeah. the claim. Can you imagine what chaos that would result in? But the, 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 the second point is really the, the, the bigger one, which is uh, you're trying to apply the rules for a conclave Amen. to something that was merely a cardinal's retreat. Yep. It doesn't matter that it looked like a conclave. It was a deception. That's not what happened. There was no election, despite what it looks like. So that's really where we come back to, you know, full circle. Exactly. It was, and this is, this is a very important parallel. It was exactly like a null marriage. A null marriage means that even though you might have, you may have had the biggest, most bridezilla wedding in the history of the universe. If that, if that marriage was genuinely invalid and Jesus didn't come to your wedding, then what looked like a wedding and what your daddy dropped 50 grand on in the, in the name of a wedding was no such thing. So, and, and people are so screwed up in their minds about what a declaration of nullity is that they're they're applying they're mapping that exact same mistake onto something like this and you can't do that um right it's isn't the quote well i got an annulment like it's a post facto i got an annulment yeah, no you didn't get I an, got annulment. an annulment nope. you had you got, your marriage declared null from the beginning Yes, the church looked at it and said, "Oh wait, it was all a huge mistake. You guys were never married." That is what an annulment is, and that's exactly what we're dealing with here. There was no conclave. It looked like a conclave, and for years, for years people thought you were married. You thought you were married for years, but you weren't. Jesus didn't come to your wedding and you were never married. That's what a declaration of nullity is saying. It's not changing an, uh, an ontological reality in retrospect. It's just saying, oh, wait, we're recognizing now what the truth was, what the, what the reality was all along. We're not saying anything changed. We're acknowledging the mistake that everybody made, the, the misapprehension that everyone was under of what exactly happened here. So yeah, that's, that's my big thing. And I, again, you love Bishop Gracida, but you, you cannot apply UDG to a 
conclave that never happened. And that's that's my concern, because if you do and you start with that false base premise, no matter how good your intentions are, and you know that Bishop Grisida's intentions are 110% good and pure and everything else, he's he's wonderful. But if, if that false base premise is there, the corollaries that are going to come off of it are, are just going to lead to more and more chaos. And like I said, it's going to lead to another anti-pope and a younger one and a smarter one. So we got to get this right. Oh, we got to get it right. Amen. Yeah. That, that old false base premise will come back to bite you every mm-hmm. time. And it might take a while. It might take years and years and years, as as it does with many people um, who who have, in fact, null marriages. Not that I think that they're... There are, let's put it this way, I think that there are way, way, way fewer genuinely null marriages than what the cookie cutter, you know, the institutional church and the infiltrators and the Freemasons, they're all about destroying the family. So yeah, they're extremely enthusiastic to just hand anyone and everyone, literally everyone. Um, Bay McFarland is the, is the gal who has the, it's basically a consulting firm or an ad, advocacy, advocacy group for people who have been um, abandoned by their spouses and don't don't want any part of a civil divorce. Don't know know for a, for a fact that their marriages are valid, and yet they live in a diocese. And there are lots of dioceses throughout the United States where the approval rate of of so called annulments is either one hundred percent or in the ninety ninth percentile. Um, and so. There's there's just this whole Freemasonic agenda to just destabilize the family, um, destabilize marriage and say and and you can see you can see now how that's being applied also uh, over here. And it's 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 just intolerable. And we got to speak out against it. Amen. All right. Shall we move on to topic number two? Everybody's. uh, Everybody's favorite topic. Yay! Schism. <laughs> well, absolutely. And you know, we look at um, we look at the fact that that basically no one, including Cardinal Burke, inc- including Bishop Schneider, none of the good guys um, will will say anything. They're all absolutely terrified. And I think that this is also something that um, Pope Benedict has has been. Uh, threatened with, and it might be the primary thing that he was threatened with and is being threatened with, and that is the way that Satan has set the chessboard and the way that these infiltrators, the St. Gallen Mafia, the Walter Caspers, all of these people, what they have set the chessboard up is that um, Pope Benedict, or let's call it the church, the institutional church, the true church, is in check. And so the the ultimatum that they've been given by the enemy, by the infiltrators is either you let us schism the church or we will schism the church. So that's basically like being in check in, in a game of chess. What is the only possible response to something like that? Is it prevent defense? So Satan has the chessboard set up so that the institutional church, which is the, the white king, let's call it, the institutional church is in check from the enemies, black. Okay. Oh, that's so racist, but you know, that's okay. 
<laughs> all the social justice warrior heads simultaneously exploded as I said that. Um, so the institutional church is in check and um, the, the ultimatum that has been given to all the good guys and almost certainly to Pope Benedict himself and why I'm convinced none of them will say anything is that these, these fiends have said, either you let us schism the church as in at this Amazonian synod that they're getting ready to do, or we will schism the church. Either you let us schism the church or we will schism the church. That is the ultimatum that has been given them. And these men are weak. They don't have good tactical minds. They, um, they don't have that, that virility and that fighting spirit. And so they think that the response to this is to hunker down and play prevent defense and nothing could be further from the truth. The only response to being put in check like that and give, being given an ultimatum like that is that you have to go on aggressive offense and you have to do it immediately. And the longer you wait and the longer you let this situation draw out, the worse it's going to be in terms of casualties because every day people are dying, going to their particular judgment, and they have been scandalized. They have been ratified in their sins or they have completely lost their faith because of anti-Pope Bergoglio. So the casualties are just mounting up with each day this goes on because they were, they've been given this ultimatum. The only response to it is aggressive offense and they will not do it. Nothing happens. No problem progress is going to be made. No steps are going to be made to correct the situation until somebody mans up and goes on aggressive offense. It's a combination of cowardice and uh, misguided, uh, I don't know, this thought that, well, the, the way to reduce or eliminate casualties is to just wait, lay low, let it play out. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Are there going to be casualties if you step up to the plate and start doing your job? Yes, there absolutely will be. And probably the first ones to step up are going to take the heaviest yep. casualties. And, you know, that could be red, red martyrdom, let's face it. But sitting back is going to result in so much more carnage, both from a material perspective and a supernatural perspective, that it's just unbelievable to me. Yes, is it shocking that we actually find ourselves living at this point in time, especially if you're in a position of authority in the church? Yes, I'm sure it comes as quite a shock. Yeah. Get over it. These guys need to man up and do their jobs and understand, you know, understand first of all what the likelihood of their their own particular yeah. judgment is going to look like if they continue yeah. to do what they're it's doing, like, which is nothing. Uh, the way I always think about it is um, imagine if World War II, the bombing of Pearl Harbor and FDR and Eisenhower all said, well, we can't respond because somebody might get hurt. Or, you know, Eisenhower said, we can't, we can't mount the D-Day invasion because someone might get hurt. Or even more laughably, Patton would have said, I cannot mount the invasion of Sicily because someone might get hurt. I mean, come on. And then the other, the other point relative to what you said is, you know, if I'm Cardinal Burke or Bishop Schneider or frankly, anyone else at this point, and I'm not being facetious, I want, if I'm Cardinal Burke, I want anti-Pope Bergoglio to quote unquote, take my red hat. Oh, bring it, bring it. And I want, 
Yeah. Oh, totally. What, what oh, I had source my of honor than that. fake, fake taken. I had, I had the the likely false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist attempt to throw me out of the College of Cardinals. That is the most awesome thing I've ever heard in my life. How cool is that? I would love to be formally excommunicated by anti-Pope Bergoglio. Oh my gosh. I, please send me a nice piece of paper with that on it that I can mat and frame and keep as a cherished heirloom for the rest of my life. And then, you know, bury me with it in my coffin, put it over my heart, bring it. I want to be excommunicated by the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist and an anti-Pope. How could you not want to be? I mean, how can you imagine? Imagine literally being able to go to your particular judgment and our Lord look down at you and say, well, <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> and you, and you, you literally pull out a piece of paper and hold it up and say, I was excommunicated by the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist. And, and yeah, and you can't be, you can't be excommunicated right. by Bergoglio because, because he's an anti-pope. You, so he, he doesn't have the power to do it. Doesn't have the power to do it. And, you know, not not to be too smug about it, but, uh, you know, honestly, yeah. follow the rational thought. Everything that Ann just said is 100% true if you just follow the rational thought process uh, to, to its logical con- conclusion. It, it is and, – and yet – and yet there are people in, you know – otherwise orthodox and or trad circles that throw out the schism threat yeah. to, to try to silence people to this day. It just makes no sense to me at all. And, you know, yes, it's, it's, uh, uh, are we at risk of faux excommunication? Yes. From a faux Yeah, I pope? totally, totally me yeah, too. Yeah, and so, I'm good you know, with it. The, Bring the it on. The new buzz phrase, the kind of, the new Orwellian buzz phrase of, you know, speaking speaking truth to power is this sentence, Bruce Jenner is a man. Okay, anti-Pope Bergoglio, hear me now and believe me later and all your little faggot friends that are running around you. Bruce Jenner is a man. Sodomy is is mortal sin. There is no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. The Jews are not saved. Proselytism is absolutely essential. It is the Great Commission. We can go on and on and on. Jesus Christ, his body, blood, soul, and divinity are really and truly physically substantially present in the Eucharist. Um, we could go on and on and on. It's going. We are. Hell has not been abolished and souls every single annihilated. Exactly. Okay. It's oh, and women can never, ever, ever, ever be ordained deacons or priests ever. It's it is an ontological impossibility. Okay, we are fast approaching modus in fine velocior. Things things accelerate as they near the end. We are fast approaching a, a, a day when any one of those statements could potentially be used as uh, grounds for excommunication. We just had um, the odious, odious sodomite priest, Father James Martin F.J. Um, he just released a video in which he is calling on the government of the United States to crack down on the fanatical uh, hate speech 
that is present within the Catholic Church. And this is this is totally you could see this coming years and years and years ago. It will be validly ordained Catholic clergy and prelates who will be coming after us. We will be sent to the guillotine. We will be sent to the gallows. We will be sent before the firing squad by validly ordained uh, clerics and prelates in in the Catholic Church who are obviously um, subscribers to the anti-church. You, you could see this coming years off. So it, it's, it's not possible to be excommunicated for confessing whole and entire the Catholic faith. So what do you do if you're excommunicated? Well, first of all, you, like I said, you find a really good framing store and you get that thing matted and framed within an inch of its life and you hang it up above your fireplace. That's what you do, first of all. Then are you telling me that you don't have priests that you know who wouldn't be willing to give you Holy Communion in the sacristy privately, that you make an appointment and, you know, however often you want, you make an appointment with Father and clandestinely and, and you know, on, on the DL, and you go and you receive, you receive Holy Communion in the sacristy privately outside of Mass. You don't have... You don't have to receive, first of all, you don't have to receive Holy Communion at Mass or any other time ever. You only have to receive it once a year. So that that is one of the precepts of the church to um, receive Holy Communion once a year. And up until Pius X, people didn't receive Holy Communion often at all. So that's nothing to be afraid of. People were making good spiritual communions um, most of the time, even St. Catherine of Siena only received Holy Communion four to six times per year, and even then only with the permission of her spiritual director. And guys, she was mystically espoused to Christ. Um, and this gets into another whole different rant about the Eucharistic fast. Um, up until 1957, the Eucharistic fast was from midnight for everybody. So if you if you ate anything from midnight up until you received Holy Communion that day, you had broken the fast, and that was that was an illicit communion that you just made. In fact, the church taught that it was a sinful communion that you had just made. Um, and so that's actually little personal side side note. That was something that I was advised to start doing a couple years ago, and I can tell you that it has borne tremendous fruit for me. Start observing the Eucharistic fast from midnight. You don't have to. I, I fully acknowledge that the law of the church that that we're under right now, the 83 code, that the Eucharistic fast is not from midnight anymore. Um, but bear in mind that it was midnight up until 1957. And that's when it changed and it went to three hours. And then, of course, when the Novus Ordo and the asteroid hit and all of that and the Novus Ordo was promulgated, they reduced it to one hour, which isn't even a fast at all. But that is the law of the church right now. But trust that after the, the triumph of the Immaculate Heart, it's it's almost the Eucharistic fast is almost certainly going to go back to midnight. So um, you don't have to receive Holy Communion. You can make a good spiritual communion. And what that does is it makes the quality of the sacramental communions that you receive that much better. So back to our original point, what does happen if, if you do get excommunicated? And this is starting to happen. I don't think it's happened with any laity yet, but it's starting to happen with priests. Um, what do you do? 
Well, of course, you're going to be able to find, you're going to go, you're going to explain your situation, show it to a priest, and you're, I can guarantee you, you're going to be able to find a priest who sees that this is abject BS and says, yes, I will give you Holy Communion in the sacristy by appointment. And there's nothing wrong with that. And you better get used to it, too. That might be how a lot of us end up. Um, making sacramental communions is that we're going to have to do it essentially in hiding by appointment in the sacristy, non-publicly. So there's nothing wrong with that. All the evidence that's out there right now suggests this is the direction things are going and this is where it's going to end up. So you better get your head around it um, if you're serious. And just keep in mind, if you are adhering to the faith as it has been handed down for 2000 years, you are with the church. That's the bottom line. Uh, you got to you got to keep your your gaze fixed on that. Keep your gaze fixed on Jesus. And you know things like the Eucharistic fast. Um, yes, the, the the law of the church today is is one hour. Which you know, let's face it, that means basically don't eat anything in the car on the yeah. way to mass. It's not really a fast. See if you can you know see what you can do. Fasting is is a good in a, in and of itself, even if not tied to. Uh, uh, the Eucharist in particular, mm-hmm. um, just out of reverence, just fast, fasting in general is a, is a, is an objective good. See if you can do two hours, see if you can do three hours. You know, you don't have to try from midnight, uh, for at the very beginning, see if you can do a little bit more and see if that doesn't bring you some additional graces that you can, that you can, that you will probably and, pretty readily um, recognize. Absolutely do that. And then the other thing I would recommend is if you want to, and you should probably consult, if you have a spiritual director or a confessor, you should obviously talk this over with him. Um, maybe make the commitment that I'm going to only, I'm going to do um, spiritual communions Monday through Saturday, and then I'll only receive sacramental communion on Sunday or something like that, something like that. And really focus on um on the how special and what a big deal making a sacramental communion is and one of the reasons that i i i really uh was convinced by this advice that came to me about making more spiritual communions and fewer sacramental is because at exactly the same time as this was recommended to me by one person another person told me that they had just gone on a pilgrimage to Poland and that they had become familiarized with the writings of a Polish mystic, of which there are many, but who isn't who isn't terribly well known outside of Poland, but is approved by their bishop. And this this person was, I think this person, this mystic is already dead. Um, but one of the things that this mystic uh, wrote about was the fact that our Lord is is as offended by um, sacramental communions that are made casually and just very much out of habit and without any real good uh, preparation, even if the person is in a state of grace and doesn't have any unconfessed mortal sins or anything like that, even if you've just been to, to confession and made a good confession, you know, 30 minutes before, if, if you just go back to your pew and it's just your mind is kind of a blank and then you just kind of trudge up like 
casual, no big deal, and just casually, no big deal, receive our Lord sacramentally, our Lord's our Lord is is offended by that as well. And that really got me thinking. And the fact that these two things happened at the same time, these two pieces of advice came at the same time. I stepped back and I said, you know, that's absolutely right. And then I do want to mention one more thing. We can, boy, this could talk about rabbit holes. Father Z had a post um, just not terribly long ago, within the last 10 days or so. And the question was, should someone, should married people abstain from the conjugal embrace before receiving Holy Communion, like a 24-hour preparatory um, fast from the conjugal embrace, and the answer—the answer is absolutely yes. You should. Um, you should be. You should be doing everything you can to prepare and remind yourself of what an incredibly big deal this is and remind yourself that receiving sacramental communion is the greater nuptial reality than even the conjugal embrace between you and your and your human spouse. Um, it's a really, really, really big deal. Um, even, even the Jewish priests, you know, before our Lord's incarnation in the temple, they had to abstain from the conjugal embrace for two weeks before going on duty in the temple. And then, of course, while they were on duty in the temple for their two-week shift, they were obviously, you know, not with their wives, obviously. And this all feeds into the question of why anti-Pope Bergoglio is gunning to destroy priestly celibacy with this satanic Amazonian uh, witch doctor synod monstrosity that's coming. They want, they want sexually active um, clergy on the altar. That's... That's clearly what they're going for. And then, but, you know, abstaining from the conjugal embrace, married people abstaining um, before receiving sacramental communion just points to that. It reinforces it even more. So, um, yeah, absolutely. You should you should abstain and make sacramental communion a huge, big deal. And if it isn't, if it isn't a huge, big deal for you, then don't do it. Just make us just make a spiritual communion. I mean, a, a good point would be that even if you did just come out of confession right before Mass or possibly even after Mass has started, you're still saying the six or nine mea couples, right? And you, yeah. you really are still saying them sincerely, right? You certainly should be. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, there, there's no such thing as being in a state of too much humility or too much contrition. Yeah. It's just, it's, it, it's, it's not possible. So think about that. And, you know, that, the, um, you know, part for me, uh, or maybe this is just objectively speaking, one of the biggest issues with the Novus Ordo, and we could really go into a rabbit hole there, I know, but the 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 noise and the the whole idea of having the hug of peace <sighs> as the thing that's done immediate after the consecration and immediately before receiving communion is the is probably the most disjointed thing in the new mass. Yeah. It just, it makes no sense whatsoever. It absolutely throws you. Uh, and you know, I was in the Novus Ordo paradigm for a year or so after entering the church. And I can remember just that, that weird, weird dynamic of, you know, who, who am I standing next to? Oh, do I have to turn around and make sure that I shake hands with these people, these people, these people, um, people trying to talk to you and actually like 
not not start a full blown conversation, but trying to talk to you during this. I mean, it's it is so or, messed or up. Or even the, the priests that you know what what kind of formation did you receive that you just validly confected the Eucharist and you are going to leave Jesus Christ on that altar and go halfway down the nave of the church to shake hands? Really? Yeah, because their formation was not any of that. Um, you talk, talk to Novus Ordo priests and ask them what their seminary formation was. And the vast majority of it was studying heretics and studying pop psychology. And there, there's, there are a lot of Novus Ordo priests out there. And to this day, even fairly young Novus Ordo priests who have no idea about the real presence. I, there, I read a testimony of one not too terribly long ago, and I think the guy said that the, the priest said he was in his early 30s. And he had started, to, he had, for whatever reason, started to take, um, take lessons in how to offer the old mass. And he said that he was absolutely flabbergasted flabbergasted to learn about the real presence and about the fact that this was in fact the um the the warping of space time and it was literally calvary that you were literally at calvary and that wasn't just some big symbolic action he had no idea do not underestimate how awful absolutely awful priestly formation is, and it's all over the world. It's in Rome, it's in North America, it's in South America, it's in Asia, it's everywhere. Do not underestimate how truly awful it is. Most of them, most Novus Ordo um, priestly formation includes exactly nothing about the sacrament of, of confession. Nothing. They're told nothing about it. They have no idea what to do, how to do it, what to say. Um, and so, you know, they're plopped down in the confessional and, you know, people start to them. And I can only imagine the the sewage in this day and age that these priests are having unloaded upon them when they do hear confessions. And they're completely ill-equipped they don't they don't even know what to say and so they end up a lot of them again because they're so poorly formed um and the big example that you i mean me, me now over the years in my email box the, in fact there's two the two big things that priests who are completely unformed in the novus ordo have told people in the confessional over the last 40 50 years is that um, self abuse masturbation and contraception are not sins and so now you've got this whole dynamic of of priests basically i can't remember the term it's not solicitation um, solicitation is when they when a priest actually solicits sex in the in the confessional and that's a sin that's reserved to the to the holy see um, it, it, there's a name for it when when a priest specifically in tells somebody that that it's okay to commit a sin oh that's that's an absolutely horrible sin that's that's on the priest's conscience or on the priest's soul at that point and it, it's so ubiquitous now in the novus ordo it's it's just terrible and let's not forget that if masturbation and contraception are okay then biological corollary yep, sodomy Hello, people. There's no getting away from it. If you're okay with masturbation and you're okay with contraception, you logically can't have a problem with sodomy. Get because that through sodomy, your head. It's yeah, a direct sodomy, sodomy is just 
a species of masturbation. It's just that you're using another person's um, body parts of various and sundry types and, and descriptions as the point of friction. Um, but it's, it's the same thing. It's a species. It's a, it's intrinsically a species of masturbation. You're just using the other person. It's not, it's the natural law. It's, it's called the the reproductive (laughs) system. And if you use it for a purpose that is contrary to its nature, it's wrong. It's literally that simple. Yep. Absolutely. So there's that man talk about these. You, you called it, you said we were going to go down some, some deep, deep rabbit holes and all sorts of rabbit holes. Well, one thing that you just said really did surprise me that if, that if there are Novus Ordo priests out there, that I think what you said was they don't even know that they are confecting the Eucharist. They don't understand that, that the, the real correct. presence and tr- transubstantiation. That is that, unbelievable. That, in fact, I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of people would hear that and say, well, oh my gosh, that invalidate." No, it doesn't. The hoops that have to be jumped, that, that a priest has to jump through in order to invalidate the confection of the Eucharist are massive. And he has to be, it has to be a positive, specific I do not intend to do what, I mean, it it can't just be ignorance. It can't just be blah. It has to be this extremely tight definition and these extremely specific positive actions taken on the priest's part in order to invalidate the consecration of the Eucharist. And you realize, why is that? It's because our Lord loves us so much. We know this because there are several Eucharistic miracles in which the priest who was offering the Mass fully admitted that either his faith in the real presence was flagging or he had lost it altogether. He's he's saying Mass, and I think the one in, in Bolsena, Italy, I want to say, which is Orvieto, that's it's the Orvieto and Bolsena are the same Eucharistic miracle because the towns are right next to each other. Um, I want to say that that priest had completely lost his faith in the real presence. He's saying mass. He says the words of consecration. He sets the host down and it's bleeding. It starts bleeding and there's flesh. And so even, even a priest who has lost his faith in the real presence he clearly was not making a positive, a, a positive movement of the will. There was yeah. no, the, yeah, the, there was no willful exactly. intent. So, and that's how much does God love us? I mean, just proof set after proof set after proof set of how much he loves us. He'll, he'll come even if the priest doesn't, doesn't even believe or doesn't even know about the real presence. Our Lord comes in, in the Novus Ordo Mass as long as, you know, the matter form and, you know, the words of consecration are right and there isn't this positive malignant intention to invalidate the thing by the priest, which most of them don't. They, it, that's kind of, it's actually kind of cool because since so many of them don't believe in any of it at all, it would, it's, it wouldn't occur to them to make that positive act to invalidate because they don't believe in it in the first place. So it's just this, I keep saying this, God is such a good human resources manager and it stands to reason. He set the whole thing up so that it's completely logical. And so there is the maximum amount of protection 
so that the 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 mass is valid the eucharist is confected why because he loves us because he loves us that much and he wants to be in the tabernacle he doesn't want the tabernacle to be a a bread box the tabernacle is where his body, blood, soul, and divinity are reposed so that you can go into any Novus Ordo church and be and have assurance and, and a completely reasonable um, confidence that, yes, there's the tabernacle. Yes, there's the red candle lit. Yes, our Lord is reposed therein. You don't have to go through life, even in these dark days, thinking to yourself, well, what what if that what if our lord isn't in there am i going to be engaging in idolatry da, 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 da. no no it's all he set it all up so that there's maximum protection against all of that and we can indeed be confident and reasonably assured that yes he's in the tabernacle even in a novus ordo parish yes he's comes down on the altar even in a novus ordo mass even in a in a in an very illicit novus ordo mass he's still coming down he's still on the altar and, you know, even the, the broader paradigm of the mess that we're in is not a sign that God doesn't love us anymore. Everything that we're experiencing right now is part of the divine providence. And, you know, although much of it obviously is through his passive will, um, he still knows what he's doing and he still wins in the end. And you have to have hope. You have to have confidence. Um, you have to not cower in a corner. Yeah. Uh, use your rational intellect. Use the data set. Use the use the visible data set for crying out loud. That's in, that's in front of you yep. to make decisions, to go forward, and 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 to fight. I, I wanted to go back just for a minute to to the, the point about spiritual versus uh, sacramental communion, because um, I make it to mass about six days a week, mm-hmm. and I, I'm about half sacramental, half. Um, uh, usually the 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 early morning masses I. I don't take communion. I make a spiritual communion. Mm-hmm. It's not to be looked upon as a deprivation. Oh, no. Obviously, sacramental communion is a tremendous good, and and you know just what a what a what a stupendous gift that is. But a spiritual communion is not to be looked at as a deprivation. It is a tool. It is a tool to be used to draw yourself closer, and you can get a lot out of making a proper spiritual communion. If if you if you, you know, can't sort of uh, do it uh, on your own to start with, just sort of let it flow. There's tons of prayers in a, in, a, in in your hand missile that oh, yeah. that you, you can use during during the communion time to 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 get you through it and to and to help you know gain additional graces. It's it's um it's it's not as special not as special as sacramental communion. Don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. it's not a deprivation if you use it as a tool. No, it isn't at all. And you know, just just talk to him. Even you, what what do you say to him when you receive sacramentally? Okay, you've gone up to the communion rail, you've received our Lord sacramentally. You go back, you kneel down in the pew. What do you say to him? Well, say say basically the same things to him when you make the spiritual communion. You just have to say to him, Lord come into me. Let I want to make a spiritual communion right now. And he does. What, what you think he's going to say no to making a spiritual communion? No way. Of course he's going to, he's going to absolutely, if you ask him for it, he's there. You can ask him and you can make a spiritual communion as many times during the day as you want to. 
as many times as you want to. You don't have to be at mass. You can do it all day, every day if you want to. And he's always going to come. Um, but there's a really interesting point that was made about um, the whole paradigm that now exists about everybody receiving Holy Communion every time they go to Mass. Here's one Here's one byproduct of that. Um, before, when people didn't receive Holy Communion, but a few times a year, let's say, it was it was absolutely no big deal if there was somebody there in the church who didn't go up for communion. Think about it today, and even in trad parishes, there is a low-grade peer pressure that people feel, and I think sometimes it might even be worse than the Novus Ordo, that um, if you don't go up and if you don't receive sacramentally, that there's this there's this mind worm that gets into you and it's the devil and y- people might start thinking well other people are seeing that i haven't gone up to holy communion so they're going to assume that i'm in a state of unrepentant mortal sin because i'm like the only person who didn't go up and everyone else in the you know in the pew had to crawl over me because i didn't go up and that gets into this really weird dynamic of people then feeling this bizarre peer pressure to go up and worrying about what other people think about them if they don't whereas this dynamic simply did not exist in the entire history of the church up until um, people started receiving at basically every time they went to well, mass. As, up until basically everything went to hell. <laughs> so yeah, many things exactly. you could point to, right? <laughs> exactly. So I mean, it's it's weird. And so, but then you just you just have to put that aside and say, <laughs> well, if that's what they think, then sorry for them. There could be many reasons why a person doesn't go up. They might. Oh, that's this is another thing about the fast. It never occurs to anyone anymore because they're with the one hour Eucharistic fast. It doesn't even occur to anyone anymore that the reason a person isn't receiving is because they haven't observed the fast. Because if the fast is only an hour, then, well, how could you have not observed the fast? It's like you said. I mean, there are a, a high sung Sunday trad mass. It takes more than an hour before you get to the the distribution of Holy Communion. So then the question becomes, well, or, or it doesn't even occur to anyone that you that it's because you have not observed the Eucharistic fast. Whereas before, if you before 1957, even let's say, if you went to Mass and you didn't receive. People, not that it matters what other people think, but people would have in their mind, oh, well, that person must have had something to eat before Mass and they're just not receiving. Nowadays, that thought doesn't even enter anyone's mind. The only thought that enters someone's mind if you don't go up to receive Holy Communion is, uh uh oh, uh oh, somebody needs to go to confession. And that, right. that, that, that <laughs> might not, that's probably not it at all. It, and it might just be that you're someone who is committed to doing um, more spiritual communions and fewer sacramental in order to improve the quality of your sacramental communions. Good point. You can, yeah. So, it, I mean, you see how these things just kind of get all of these weird consequences that come out of them. I think, I mean, most trad parishes that I've, been to that there there are you know quite a few people that 
art making Sacramento commune on, on, I'm talking about Sundays now. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I normally see a lot versus the typical Novus Ordo par- parish where it is just cattle call. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's the entire point that they think that you go to mass and you get your, your participation cracker your cookie. Yeah. and that's your, yeah. And that's the point of going. Well, I, I usually don't think of it as a cookie because it's not sweet. I just think of it as, as they think of it as a cracker. It's their participation cracker. That's also racist too, by the way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah. So, I mean, I just, the typical Novus Ordo Sunday mass, it must be just girls and Daisy Dukes lining up to go up and get there. Well, and you know, there's a lot of that even that just used hashtag Daisy Dukes in a post, but yeah, that's, um, you get that honestly, even now part of this is, is I'm in the desert, but even at very reverent Novus Ordo parishes, you get, um, an eyeful, let's say it's, it is, it is not uncommon at all. Basically what it comes down to is unless there is a, long-standing announcement in the bulletin that's been there for 10 years that explains what the dress code is and or there is a sign at every entrance to the church mm-hmm. a a pictorial sign showing you yeah. if you look like this you're not coming in here make sure you look like this on the right hand side if you're going to come in here and there's even things i remember when i had was i was still in rcia in fact and so all of the RCIA people would sit in the first two rows at mass on Sunday morning at the at the eleven o'clock. And I remember one time. Then, of course, they did a they did a children's sermon thing. They did a kitty kitty time, and so uh, the priest calls all the kids up to hear the little kitty homily. And this woman walks up her toddling about a two-year-old you know has the child in hand and walks up and is is depositing this child to hear the kitty sermon and this woman her, her her blouse wasn't immodest but she was wearing pants she was wearing white dress slacks and she was wearing thong underwear and I, all the ladies out there know exactly what i'm about to say she was in fact she was wearing white thong underwear her pants were completely transparent and you could totally see the outline of her thong underwear. And so behind me was sitting um, one of the one of the parishioners who helped with the RCIA group and he was in his late seventies and kind of deaf. And so, you know, when, when people are kind of old and deaf, they tend to speak uh, loud because they don't realize how loudly they're speaking. And she, she walked up and walked past and it was just, I mean, it was like a billboard. They, there was, there was no way. And she wasn't fat. It, it was just, you could not avoid seeing this. And he, and the, the deaf old man says, look at that. That's awful. How does she, why is she coming to church dressed like that? And he says it almost completely out loud and she's only a few feet away from him. And I, uh, I snickered to myself and it was, 
it was a good lesson that, you know, ladies, it, just because you're wearing pants and just because you're just because you're covered, you need to be making sure that you're not transparent, that your your underwear isn't showing through your clothes, et cetera, et cetera. There's, you would think this would so be a pretty just, basic thing, but apparently it's not. I, it really isn't. And I marvel at, um, you know, men who let their wives leave the house looking like that. I mean, I guess I guess most men are just so browbeaten that they're not willing to stand up to their wives and say, honey, you can't go out like that. I can see your underwear straight through your pants. You have to go you have to go put something else on and you, because you know, the woman would throw a damn fit and start crying and are you saying I'm fat? And you know, you know how it is, you know how women are. So, um, it, but it's, it's really a shame. And then super nerd and I have talked about this on the may on the, on our episodes of the Barnhart podcast recently, but this, this deal with clothes and young girls now, I mean, I thought I thought it was bad five years ago, um, but just I would say within the last last year or two, this situation with these girls who are all overweight. Let me just say that I haven't seen I haven't seen a teenage girl that's not overweight in a very long time, and I'm not and I don't have like anorexic standard standards or anything like that. I haven't seen a girl who's not overweight in a very long time. And they are wearing clothes that I just look at them and I think, how in the world can you be a teenage girl or a girl in her early 20s, put that outfit on, go and look at yourself in a mirror and not be so completely horrified by how you look and how fat and what a what an absolute slut you look like how can you leave the house looking like that and dude it's all of them it is all of them if you see a girl today who's wearing a skirt at her knees that goes to her knees she's probably a trap right right the all the other girls are are wearing daisy dukes and i saw one girl several weeks ago, walking down the street, teen, she was probably 18 or so, again, about probably 20, a good 25 pounds overweight. She was wearing a mini skirt that was so short that not only were her butt cheeks hanging out the bottom of it, but her crotch cheeks were hanging out the bottom of that. And I went and I went and talked to her and I said, you have no idea how bad you look Everybody sees you, is embarrassed. People are gasping. People are talking about you. People are laughing at you as you walk down the street. You look like a whale. You look like you're mentally retarded. You have to go put and? some clothes on. And and she she laughed at me and uh, she didn't call me a name. She said something derogatory. And you and know, what was the, the can, fact can you the say what the was, setting is, here was? Uh, it was in like a public, like a public okay. square, a public park. Lots of people, lots and lots of people milling around. And um, it occurred to me, and then I, I just, I, I walked on, I walked away from her because I don't, you know, do it, uh, it, you know, bring the pain, say the, say the painful thing, and then clear out. And let, and so that their embarrassment is kind of alleviated in a sense. I mean, they've 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 received the 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 painful shot. Now let them deal with it. 
But it occurred to me that that girl, all of her friends and all of the other people on the street, that I was the person, that I was the only person in that moment who cared enough about her. Well, that's the truth of the matter. Her. I mean, th- th- that is the, the objective truth yeah. of the matter. And I think we've got a couple of different dynamics going on here. Um, you know, one is the uh, anti-body shaming movement. I don't know what they would call themselves, but that's what it is. That uh, you know, trying to yeah. again, and, and this is this is also grounded in in the the anti-reality that we talk about all the time. Uh, that there is no mm-hmm. objective difference between a person at a healthy weight and an obese person. It's just they're two different. There, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's not, it's just, it's, you be you, you do you, that, that you is, do how, you. How, mm-hmm. are there any, mm-hmm. are there three more pernicious words in, in, in Western civilization today than you do you? Um, my, my truth, your truth, that whole, there you go. my truth, your truth thing. That's, that's every bit as bad. Yeah, so, <laughs> exactly. And so then the it, other, the, yeah, the, the, the second dynamic horrible. that I just was just going to touch on is just the, the, the overall, yeah. the overall, uh, uh, decline in, in modesty. And I mean, it's been a long time coming, a very long time coming, but I think this acceleration that you see really just in the past couple years, and I mean, less than the last five years is that the, the, they're not even masking the nudity any, anymore. It's like this whole Miley Cyrus dynamic. No. It's just like mainstream websites are not even blocking out, blurring out uh, obscene images anymore. This is just a, 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 something in the last year or two that, that's happening. And if you're going to begin mainstreaming, well, not begin, but maybe you know, this is more like end game of mainstreaming nudity, Boy, oh boy, we're we're mm-hmm. we're right at the end here. If that's if that's where we are, I can only assume the the only the, the only further step. And I'm <laughs> famous last words, right? That that I can foresee is is lesbians specifically and other sex perverts um, engaging in topless walking around women walking around topless and then demanding that as some sort of a right. I anticipate that you're probably going to see lesbians try to, to broach that here pretty quick so that you're, and I've said this for a while. I think what they're driving at is they, they want to make it so that nobody can even go outside and walk down the street without seeing someone completely naked or as it is in San Francisco, there are areas of San Francisco, the Tenderloin and the Castro and so on and so forth, where when you are walking down the street, you have a sporting chance of seeing two sodomites in flagrante and on folks, the street. Let let lest you think Anne is exa- exaggerating right now. Believe me, that is true. In San Francisco, mm-hmm. that is true. And yep. both that and the scenario that you describe, potential scenario you, you describe, where you you could have women that are just saying men can be topless. That means women can be topless. That's equality. Yep. That is that that is a species of yep. you know forced participation. We always talk about you know the goal was never tolerance. Yep. 
the goal wasn't ever even no, you know, no, 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 affirmation or acclamation. The goal was always from the beginning participation. Participation. Yep. And walking down the street and having to see people engaging in in sex or sodomy or even just nudity is an attempt at trying to get people to participate or at the very least turn a blind eye. So what what Satan ultimately wants is we're all going to be imprisoned um, in a certain sense that it will be almost impossible in major major cities, let's say, to just go outside. It's going to be to the point where you're just going to have to I don't know what you will do at that point when you've got people doing things like that openly on the street. But I think it's it, it's something that should be anticipated and sadly. Well, well then it, um, th- then it will it will um, evolve from a you know virtual imprisonment or whatever you just described to and I and I just mm-hmm. wrote about this. This is the whole Bruce Jenner is a man. Are you brave enough to say that? Or are you going to be brave enough to say that five years from now? Because it's not going to be yep. you know house arrest. It's going to be penal laws and jail time for people who are brave enough to openly, uh, you know, talk about reality. Oh, I'll tell you what it's going to be. It's going to be having your bank accounts frozen. That's what it's going to be. I can't say anything. I have to comply with this um, insane person who is mutilating their body. And I have to comply with this man who demands that I call him she. And if I don't do that, I will be reported and my bank account will be frozen and I will not be able to transact business. Mark of the Beast, what's up? Mm-hmm. That's what mm-hmm. it is. I'm, abs- I'm absolutely convinced that's what it is. Okay. What's topic three, Anne? <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what's, where are we we're on one, time? We're because at 110 we, right now. I, maybe we call it. And but I think I think we probably should. You were worried we only had four Samantha. four items on the agenda. Um, we only got through two, and um, I'm just going to say I was right. <laughs> well, we we solved we solved half of the mysteries of the Church of Rome just to, just in this seventy minutes. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, um, any concluding thoughts that you would like to wrap up with? Any any prayer intentions? Anything that you want to that you want to I say? I would say that uh, I have many prayer intentions, and I would certainly enjoy the readership and be most uh, most appreciative for uh, uh, for any prayers you can send my way personally or for my intentions. That's uh, I don't have a donate button, so that is uh, that is way more than than anything I could ask for monetarily. And and most most appreciated. Very very good. And I would um, I would enjoy everyone if you haven't seen it already. I have posted kind of kind of the new the new thing for me the Saint Michael Chaplet on the blog um, because Saint Michael is the guardian angel of the sovereign pontiff. When a pope is elected, when a new pope is elected. He gets St. Michael personally assigned to him. And so that means that St. Michael the Archangel, in addition to Joseph Aloysius Ratzinger's um, guardian angel from the moment of his, of his conception, he Pope Benedict still has his, his baptismal or his, um, 
his conception, his his guardian angel from conception. But guess he also one of the perks of being the Pope, y'all. You get to have Saint Michael specifically as your guardian angel, and the Saint Michael chaplet is all kinds of awesome, and it's fast. Um, it's only. Uh, it's one Our Father, three Hail Marys, and then you go through the nine choirs of angels, and there are, there's a petition, a specific petition attached to each of the nine choirs. It's really cool. So I recommend that. And um, there's all kinds of novenas that I can talk about. We're in the midst of a novena that's near and dear to my heart, the Saint Anne novena, because her feast day is coming up. So we're in the midst of that. And what other novenas? Oh, I'm getting ready to introduce to everybody, probably right after the feast of Saint Anne and that novena concludes. Um, and I have to give a shout out to one of Mark and I's mutual friends on the internet, Debbie. Hi, Debbie. Debbie um, introduced me to um, the Virgin of Revelation, and I'll be putting a post up about the Virgin of Revelation. She has a novena. That is an apparition that happened down in Rome um, in the late 1940s, and it 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 totally applies and it's an approved, it's an approved apparition. It totally applies to exactly what's going on right now. So at, right after the feast of St. Anne, keep a close eye on my blog and I'm going to start um, enjoining everyone to, um, to pray to the Virgin of Revelation. I'm In about 45 to- minutes to the first video on uh, the Virgin of Re- Revelation and it is something else folks. Definitely something to check out. Yeah, it really is. Yep. So be on the lookout for that. And as always, just thank you, thank you, thank you to one and all. And thank you so much, Mark, for doing this. Um, Really cool. And look forward to periodically doing more of these because there's there's always plenty to talk about. And Super Nerd, God bless him, is is just about the busiest guy in the world. And um, it's it's nice to give him a little break every once in a while. And <laughs> and it's also good for us to be able to talk about the Bergolian anti papacy and um you know hash hash these ideas out uh between us so i think i think there's going to be a lot of people who are really interested in in listening to these episodes so i well, really appreciate I, uh, you, I appreciate the invite we've got a lot more to talk about so i look forward to doing it again and uh do you want to do matthew seventeen twenty? Yeah, Matthew 17, 20 intention, fast twice a week as you can. Um, And the intention is, uh, and um, I also just made a post in joining, um, getting contemplatives involved in this. Yeah. Get those contemplatives. It it can't hurt. Even if you think, well, if I write this intention out on one of these prayer intention cards and submit it to, you know, this contemplative group here, there or anywhere, they're just going to they're just going to tear it up and ignore it. Ah, Knock and the door shall be answered. Ask and you shall receive even in the act of just asking. Um, that's opening up a vector for God to act. So don't worry about getting rejected or anything like that. And if, if they look at something like that and they say, well, this is crazy. I'm not, I'm not going to, we're not going to pray for this intention, but we'll pray, we'll pray for the Pope. Okay. Our lady mediatrix of all graces, she can take anything and she can take those intentions and she can, she can, in a sense, rework it as the mediatrix of all graces. 
and direct it into what what it needs to go to. So for for example, if you were to make some other intention um, for something that was not God's will, impossible, based on error, et cetera, et cetera, um, that intention and that charity and that prayer can be taken and corrected and fixed and redistributed by Our Lady. And so don't, don't worry about that either. If, if the contemplatives say, well, we're not going to do this specifically, but we're just going to pray for the Pope. Well, guess who the Pope is? Yeah, I mean, a couple <laughs> points. And this is, what the, this is so, why the podcast never yeah. ends when it's supposed to end, by the way. But the two more points. The contemplatives yeah, right, right. are the greatest arsenal that we have on earth, period, full stop. To, mm-hmm. to not enjoin them, to not, if you're able, to be a benefactor and to have your intentions uh, prayed for by the nuns and remembered at their masses, you're really missing out folks, because this is the, the talk about a direct line to heaven that there isn't a better one here in this, uh, here on earth. So that's the first thing. The second thing is mm-hmm. by, by, you know, the post that you made and where you're, you're putting the Matthew seventeen twenty initiative into a prayer intention card, that's going to go to a group of contemplatives you don't know how much information is coming into that cloister. You don't know how much they're aware, fully aware of everything that's going on. My bet is not very much. So, you know, so by getting that in there, you know that it's going to be read. It may confirm some ideas that are already going on inside that cloister. You, you, You just don't know. But if you don't try, you're, you're, you know, you've got, you've got no chance. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. So um, just recapping what the Matthew 1720 initiative intention is, it is that anti-Pope Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-Pope and the whole thing be nullified. It is that Pope Benedict Ratzinger be publicly acknowledged as having been the one and only living Pope since April of 2005. It is that anti-Pope Bergoglio repent revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace, and someday achieve the beatific vision. And it's and we're not praying that he dies. We're, the prayer is, is that he dies in the fullness of time in the state of grace. We're not, we're not praying for his death per se. We're praying that he dies in a state of grace. And with Pope Benedict Ratzinger, that he repent of whatever he may, may need to repent of, that he likewise someday in the fullness of time dies in the state of grace and someday achieves the beatific vision. That is the Matthew 17, 20 intention. Um, it is, it seems to me that it's, it's rooted in charity. It is not, it is not filled with contempt and hatred and despair and hopeless hopelessness. In fact, it's, it's a, it's an intention of supreme confidence in, in our Lord and his mother to to affect whatever it is that they want to affect. They can do, God can do whatever he wants, when he wants, however he wants. And so any any cries of despair or hopelessness are are completely non-Catholic and should be disregarded. Just keep Amen. Praying. We're at 120. Yay! All right, there there it is. So, on that happy note, uh, uh, I'm Mark. And I'm Ann. Good night and God bless. Thanks, guys. <laughs>